Hello, happy Sunday. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Jasmine, and I'm here with my co-host, Emily. And this episode is airing on Sunday, August the 21st, and will be rebroadcast Monday, August the 22nd. And Reese is also going to be sharing a national news story with us a little bit later. So first things first, Emily, how have you been doing? All right. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. I was just in Scotland for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. That was really cool. Whoa. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. And today that we're recording, it's my grandpa's 93rd birthday. I don't know, you know, he's out in the world. I don't know if he's listening, but he is he's absolutely killing it. He still plays tennis a bunch. Happy birthday, grandpa. Oh yeah, happy birthday to him. Is it is this still Leo season or have we switched over? I feel like it's definitely cusp. I feel like the 20th, 21st is when those things shift. Wait, let me see. It's my grandpa Leo. <laughs> According to this, it's still Leo. All right. Well, I guess I I heard that that's like a Leo trait like being, you know, feisty and <laughs> up and at him no matter what so yeah. happy birthday to your grandfather oh thank you um i am hanging in there like i always say i can't complain too much if i did it wouldn't change anything mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i'm just rolling with the punches mm-hmm. yeah and um i am doing the local story today so i'm gonna go ahead and get started with that um this is not it's not super new but it is it flew under the radar but it was within the last month so this article was written july 28th by alia schneider for the bronx times and the title is jacoby hospitals just home seeks to house formerly jailed with medical needs but residents say criminals not welcome And um, just as a note, this was a very long write-up, so I'm not going to read everything. Like, I did condense it for the sake of time, but of course, you know, we'll always share the link so you can read the full thing another time if you would like. People were spilling out the doors of the event space at Maestro's Caterers. Hot and sweaty, shoulder to shoulder, they weren't there for a wedding or celebratory affair. They were there for a raucous Morris Park Community Association meeting about a controversial proposal called Just Home, which would provide supportive housing to homeless New Yorkers leaving jail with what NYC Health and Hospitals has described as complex medical needs like stage four cancer, end-stage renal disease, and congestive heart failure. The project would be housed in a currently unused Jacoby Hospital building at 1900 Seminole Avenue, a northern section of Morris Park known as Indian Village, which residents who may be geriatric, non-ambulatory, or require oxygen tanks or wheelchairs would enter through the Jacoby Hospital campus. The Fortune Society, a nonprofit organization chosen by the City Department of Housing Preservation and Development to develop and operate this project, would bring social services to tenants on site, along with 24-7 security and property management. The organization has a mission to help individuals with justice involvement rebuild their lives. 
The project would also have low-income units that would be rented through the City Housing Preservation and Development Connect lottery system, with preference to Bronx Community District 11 residents. A spokesperson for the Fortune Society told the Bronx Times he expects that supportive housing tenants will be coming out of jail, not prison, primarily from Rikers Island. There would be a mix of people who were sentenced to a maximum of a year and are approved for release and pretrial detainees who have not yet been convicted but are being held in custody because they cannot make the bail that has been set for them, according to the spokesperson. But residents wanted to get a clear message across at the July 19th meeting. They're not welcome. No more housing for criminals, someone screamed. Another shouted that the Bronx cannot take one more person. When one person simply shouted criminals, another corrected them yelling animals, referencing the prospective future neighbors. One woman who lives near Jacoby Hospital brought a group of young people to the front of the room saying they're the future of the neighborhood. I have worked my entire life. I came from nothing. I have a house and you people are not taking it from me, she told project representatives. The idea that people moving onto the hospital's property from Rikers Island would destroy the neighborhood she calls home was a shared theme among riled up residents at the meeting. Icon Charter School Superintendent of Schools, Edward Tom, said parents and school leaders do not want the project coming to the neighborhood. With everything happening in our country from Uvalde and everything, our priority is children's safety, he said. Detailed drawings from the plan are still being developed, so the exact number of apartments is still being determined, a New York City Health and Hospital spokesperson told the Bronx Times. A June 8th slideshow about the project said there would be 100 studios, 60% supportive and 40% low income but a more recent handout about the project cites 70 studios. The spokesperson said that if there are 70 units, there would be about 50 at most for formerly incarcerated tenants. The residents would get rent-stabilized leases and wraparound services after being selected by New York City Health and Hospitals Correctional Health Services, or CHS, based on their needs. They would also be screened by the Fortune Society. City Council Member Marjorie Velasquez said that this is not the location for the project and the district instead needs senior housing and a birthing center. We need to make sure that we're taking care of the women that we have here in our district. Asher Feldman, a Mars Park resident who tried to talk about the struggle of increasing rents, said he is also afraid but that there is a human dignity that comes with having a home. He was met with booze, and when he talked about there not being enough housing, someone shouted to close the border. Despite immense backlash, Joanne Page, president and CEO of the Fortune Society, said in a statement to the Bronx Times that the organization stands by the project. More than a quarter, 27%, of CHS's patients are homeless and people with complicated medical needs often cycle in and out of jail or the hospital, partly because of not having stable housing available, 
according to a New York City Health and Hospitals slideshow. And finding housing isn't a simple task for individuals wrapped up in the criminal justice system with discrimination and barriers that prevent them from reestablishing themselves. City Council District 13, where the project is located, has had just 58 units of affordable housing constructed from January 2014 to December 2021, while the neighboring District 15 has produced 3,115 units, according to the New York Housing Conference, an affordable housing advocacy nonprofit. A February 2021 publication on poverty and mass incarceration in New York published by the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, a nonpartisan law and policy institute, found that people with a criminal record often struggle to find housing, which contributes to cycles of poverty and recidivism. Uh, and just in case you're not aware, if you're listening, recidivism is the rate at which someone who is in the criminal justice system will reoffend and find themselves back in the um, back in the system again in the future. According to a 2018 Prison Policy Initiative article, formerly imprisoned people are almost ten times more likely to experience homelessness, and a lack of stable housing increases the likelihood that they return to prison. The Corporation for Supportive Housing, or CSH, argues in a winter 2022 report that supportive housing can help people coming from Rikers Island re-enter society with stability. Almost 3,000 people between 2015 and 2018 said they were homeless while jailed at Rikers Island, according to the report, which adds that an estimated 2,589 people at Rikers Island in a given year need supportive housing. Construction would not begin unless approved by the New York City Health and Hospitals Board of Directors and the City Council after a public hearing, and project representatives expect, if approved, the building would open in three years. Um, so that was lengthy. Um, I'll put the link up on our show pages so you can read the entire thing. I had to cut some of it down. But um, yes, that is the local story for this week. What in, oh, I mean, some of the things that were said at that meeting, like I'm not, they're like shocking, but also like not surprising if those two can be two separate things separated out. Like, um, know, I feel the same. Yeah. Like, what a horrible way to, like, like just dehumanize, you know, it's just so clearly dehumanizing of other people. Like, you're not seeing these other, these other people as your fellow, fellow humans, fellow New Yorkers, like, none of that stuff. Uh, clearly, and with such, like, violence and anger over, about people that um, you have no idea why they're, and it's also, you, you, you also separated out jail from prison. Is that, so, is that something that, I heard you at one point when you were talking, Jasmine. Is yeah, that, so this, mm-hmm. that's when you mentioned that, you know, the things they were saying, I think what struck me is that there was no listening happening because they couldn't have understood what was going on mm-hmm. or like who this housing would be for and then put that with the things they were saying. So if someone is in jail and they just didn't make bail, that does not mean that they actually did something or that they were actually convicted. 
It just meant that they didn't have the money to get out of detention. So you mm-hmm. can get arrested and be on Rikers for anything, mm-hmm. honestly. And also the types of people that were, that are being, um, that would be helped by this project. Like they're people that are in such a condition, like physically that, it, you know, someone who needs like dialysis and yes. has heart failure and things of this nature that can't walk, you know, there seems to be this idea that it's, you know, someone who we know killed someone and is this young virile threat that's roaming around. It's like, were you even paying mm-hmm. attention to what this is even for? Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I don't think that that, I don't think the answer is yes. I think they came in with an idea of what it was and they riled each other up and just got into like a frenzy because mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like the people there to speak on behalf of the project could get a word in like from what I was reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And um, yeah, it's so wild. Like there's the the side of it where it's like these people need such intense medical assistance. Like they are not a threat, even if they, if they were ever a threat, right? Like you, like you said, like it could be people that were there for a number of reasons, including, and I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's, it's going to be nonviolent offenders. They wouldn't, I don't know. I actually, I don't know, but, um, but yeah, just like people who could be there for any reason, including small things, including maybe being accused of stealing something and just not having the money. Homeless. Yeah. Yeah. Like literally not having a stable plate, you know, people are getting rounded up bully like Mm -hmm. put in jail for very simple thing that it's just a matter of they do not have a home and then they end up in jail so it's kind of like a way to acknowledge like it doesn't these people need a place to be Mm -hmm. and that's the primary reason that they're even in the system so Mm -hmm. how do you fix that you give them a place Mm -hmm. um yeah and that number of how few, and there's all, it wouldn't even all just be for people who are leaving jail. It was also meant to have a certain percentage of just affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And that number of how few units were in this specific area compared to another part of the Bronx that had like over 3,000 mm-hmm. affordable units, that was shocking to me because it sort of tells me that this might be an area that is um, maybe very militant about keeping out any type of mm-hmm. thing that's meant to, you know, to help people that, yeah. you know, might need a little extra assistance. The if, NIMBY set, the not in my backyard people. Yeah, which is, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like, I, I do understand to some degree, like we've talked about it in other um, stories on the show, like where, like Chinatown, for example, like in downtown Manhattan, like that there's, um, they have a disproportionate number of like shelters and things for people that are struggling compared mm-hmm. to other parts of the city. And it's like, I can understand making an argument that, you know, like these things should be spread out. Like yeah. it shouldn't be like there's one area that is supposed to absorb like mm-hmm. all of the Um, all of our neighbors that need the most help all in one area. Like, I agree that that's not fair. But from what I read with this, it doesn't seem like that's the case in this particular area. And the project is so benign to me. You know, it's like you're mad about people that can't walk and they need dialysis, like having a roof over their head. You want them to stay locked up. Yeah. And calling them animals. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I mean, I think it really goes to show like the not listening and the assumptions being made, like just like it just reflects again what we've talked about on the show before, which is in the United States, like when you send someone to jail or prison, it's like it's like you're dead to us now, right? Like you are we're we're categorizing you as something other than what is an acceptable member of the population. It's not about rehabilitation at all. Um, and it probably never was. And um, and the conditions in the, the jails and prisons really reflect that too, right? And and then when someone leaves, you know, it's it's almost it's the barriers that are up for someone who has to acknowledge that they have been in prison. Um, I just think about the number of forms I've had to fill out where it's just like, yes or no, have you been in jail and why? And like, just imagining how, you know, it could prevent you from getting housing, from getting a job, you know, from just living a, like a, as a person who is self-sufficient and it really, you know, the recidivism rates are not surprising, when you understand that, you know, it really does trap people in a cycle, regardless of the type of crime they've committed, right? It's not always, you know, I think people think everyone in prison is a violent offender, and that's not necessarily true, you know? It's not, and some of these people, you know, they're talking about children, or like, even the thing, it's like, you bringing up Uvalde, like, what the right. hell are you yeah. talking about? Yes, exactly. That was not like an ex-convict, <laughs> or like someone, I don't know if that's the right term, but like, that's not someone who was in jail, that's someone who just bought a gun off the street. Yeah, no, I heard I heard that too, and I was like, what are you doing? No, and it's, it's, it's scary how, like, the lack of compassion, mm-hmm. and also... You know, I think it, people are so smug sometimes, like when they think that it'll never be them, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like something could happen to you and you end up on the street and then you just doing basic bodily functions becomes like criminal. And then yeah. you would need someone to show some compassion. Or if you're talking about young people, young people, especially in the Bronx and Brooklyn, you know, if you're non-white. Yeah. You can very, the more cops are on the street, they find reasons to arrest people. Mm-hmm. That could be your child that is, you know, getting booked, like in central booking or whatever, getting processed. And then that's a blot on their record. And then what are they supposed to do? Mm-hmm. You know, but it's like people think it'll never be them. It'll never be someone they care about. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they got to find out the hard way. You know, none of these people are getting younger. These rents are not going down. You might need some affordable housing that you thought you didn't need. And then what? You wanted Mm -hmm. to fight and fight and fight to not have it in your area. You know, it's just, it reminds me of the first um, story that I talked about, or one of the first one I got on the show, where it was the same thing in Queens. And people were shouting at a meeting that they were going to burn it down. Jesus Christ. You know, or like either that they were going to or that they hope that it burns to the ground. It was one of those two things. And just having that level of hatred and yeah. with everything going on in the country right now, it's um I think there was this tweet that described fascism as a disinhibiting force. And it's scary like how you see that happening. It's like people feel like they have this permission to unleash these super ugly, nasty, like, you know, desires, and they're not afraid to say it in public anymore. And it's, it's very depressing to think of where that might lead. Mm-hmm. Really? 
Yeah. But we'll see, you know, we'll, it, the jury's still out on if it'll get full approval or like exactly how this is going to end. But as far as I can tell, it's still moving forward. So hopefully they let out their steam, but it will end up being yeah. a positive development for these people who really need help, you yeah. know. All right. So with on that note, we're going to take our first musical break. And this song is called Mystics by Yusuf Diaz and Vena. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be back in a minute. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Again, you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And here is Reese with our national news story. What's up, y'all? Happy Sunday or Monday, whenever you're catching this episode. This is Reese with a story from CNN.com. The title of this article is Black Couple Sues After They Say Home Valuation Risely rises nearly 300,000 when shown by white colleague. A Maryland couple has sued a local real estate appraiser and an online mortgage loan provider, alleging that the housing appraisal they received was unfairly low due to their race in violation of the Fair Housing Act after a second appraisal returned at nearly $300,000 higher. Nathan Connolly and and Shawnee Mott filed suit against the 2020 Valuations LLC. Its owner, Shane Lanham, and LoanDepot.com on Monday, alleging the defendant's 2020 valuations LLC and its owner discriminated against plaintiffs by dramatically undervaluing their home in an appraisal because of plaintiff's race and their home's location adjacent to a black census block, notwithstanding that it is also located within Homeland, an affluent, mostly white neighborhood, 
and LoanDepot.com discriminated against them by relying on that appraisal and denying their refinance loan. According to the complaint, Connolly and Mott are black professors at John Hopkins University who applied to LoanDepot.com to refinance the mortgage of their four-bedroom home in Homeland, Maryland, a predominantly white Baltimore neighborhood. Landham's company, 2020 Valuations, performed the appraisal for Loan Depot and returned a valuation that was more than 75000 below the conservative estimate of valuation which Loan Depot had given the couple, according to the lawsuit. Loan Depot denied the couple the mortgage refinance because of the low valuation, according to the complainant. Plaintiffs were shocked at the appraisal and recognized that the low valuation was because of racial discrimination. They told this to their Loan Depot loan officer and challenged the appraisal in a detailed letter, letter, the suit reads. Gabriel Diaz, an attorney for the couple, told CNN, the lawsuit represents his client's point of view. Connolly and Mott later reapplied with another lender and whitewashed their home, according to the lawsuit. This included removing photos of their black family from the home and having a white colleague present the property to the appraiser. The suit claims this valuation came back at 750000 more than a quarter million dollars higher than the 2020 valuations appraisal of 472000 According to the lawsuit, Lanham allegedly used an appraisal method where he compared the couple's home to properties in a majority black local area instead of the rest of homeland. Defendants Lanham's decision to geographically limit the area from which he selected comparable sales reflected his belief that, because of their race, Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott did not belong in homeland, an attractive and predominantly white neighborhood, and that a home with black homeowners located adjacent to a black predominant, predominantly black area is worth less than if it were in a whiter area that he deemed was the heart of homeland, the lawsuit alleges. CNN has reached out for Lanham for comment. Jonathan Fine, VP of Public Relations with Loan Depot, told CNN the company strongly opposes housing discrimination. While appraisals are performed independently by outside expert appraisal firms, all participants in the home finance process must work to find ways to contribute to eradicating bias, Fine said. The couple alleged that Lanham's dramatically lower valuation reflected his belief that the black family did not genuinely belong in homeland and could not be owners of a high-valued home. Lanham violated professional standard to devalue plaintiff's home because of the racist beliefs. Defendant Loan Depot relied on Lanham's appraisal despite being informed that it was infected by discrimination and stopped answering or returning the plaintiff's calls once they challenged the appraisal on that bias, the suit states. The couple is seeking damages and relief from Lanham 2020 Valuations LLC and Loan Depot for violations of the Fair Housing Act, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and Maryland fair housing laws, according to complainant. The couple's lawsuit is the latest example of the difficulties and discrimination some black homeowners say they face. Last year, a black California couple filed a lawsuit in federal court in San Francisco arguing that racial discrimination played a role in the low valuation of their home. Tanisha Tate Austin and her husband became suspicious when the Northern California home they spent years renovating was valued by an appraiser far lower than they expected. When they asked for a second opinion, a white friend pretended to own their home and they removed all artwork and photos that could have shown that it belonged to a black family. The new appraisal for their home in Marin County was more than $1.4 million and nearly half a million dollars higher than the previous estimate, they told CNN at the time. Earlier this year, the Department of Justice filed a statement of interest in the case, which is still pending.
And in Indiana last year, when Carlette Duffy concealed that she was black, she told CNN her home appraised value more than doubled. Home appraisals fall within the scope of fair housing and fair lending laws. More than 50 years after the passage of the Fair Housing Act, the racial home ownership gap is wider than ever. In 2021, for example, the black home ownership rate was 44%, while the white home ownership rate was 74%, according to the Census Bureau. Home ownership is the primary contributor to multi-generational wealth building for black and brown households, according to research highlighted in a report from the National Association of Realtors. But bias in home valuations limits the ability of black and brown families to see equitable financial returns associated with home ownership. The goal with the lawsuit is to get a measure of justice for Connolly and Mott and what they experience in the form of monetary compensation. But I think, relatedly, there is a question of education, Diaz told CNN. I think that this is an issue that is not properly understood, not widely understood. Hopefully, the case will allow people to understand and appreciate and also change the anger so that this doesn't happen to people going forward, Diaz said. Um, so this story is really important. Obviously, many black and brown people face this every day. Um, I think that the success of these two doctors to get their story on the national stage is partially because of access and their ability to understand the laws and know how to challenge them. But the reality is that this is something that black people face all over the world. And the fact that we're still dealing with this, imagine you work your entire life and then you work your entire relationship with your partner building this home so that you can sell it and possibly buy other homes, possibly move on with your life, possibly use that money to help fund your children's education or your business goals. And then your home comes back appraised at a price that's lower than what you purchased it for. Obviously, this is something that um, obviously people don't know what to do when this happens and to be able to afford legal counsel or understand the laws behind something like this um, really uh, unfortunately is a story of access and education like the lawyer said. However, I think this needs to be brought up more. We need to talk about um, unfair lending practices and how it affects black business and black ownership. Um, obviously, people of black and brown skin will not be able to move forward and their children will not have access to uh, methods of generational wealth building if these are the practices that are still commonplace. Um, my heart goes out to this couple and all the other people in this world who have been discriminated against uh, when they're trying to really make major moves. It's unfortunate that they had to be education professors and people of higher esteem to be able to push this forward, but it doesn't matter who they are, you know, that doesn't matter at all. The point is that these are things that happen every day and it's unfair to people who have worked so hard to get a piece of this American dream. Signing off y'all. Have a good weekend. This song is Sentimental Mode by Robin Ford and Bill Evans.
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Hey, everybody. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and we are back with the world news today that I will be presenting. Uh, So this story comes from an August 19th New York Times article by Hikari Hida and John Yoon titled, Drink Up, Japan Tells Young People. I'll pass, many reply. The country's tax agency, hoping to reverse the alcohol industry's pandemic doldrums, is holding a contest to encourage more drinking among the young. The article explains, quote, among the casualties of the pandemic is one that many young people in Japan say they do not miss, the drinking culture. Sobriety, they have decided after two years of less socializing and night crawling, has its advantages. And that's why a new message from the Japanese government, Drink Up, seems to be putting few in the spirit. To bolster its ailing alcohol industry, Japan's national tax agency has kicked off a contest inviting those ages 20 to 39 to submit ideas for encouraging people to consume more alcohol. It named the project after the national beverage, Sake Viva. Uh, The agency says it hopes to revitalize the industry with the contest, whose winner is to be selected in a tournament later this year. But its entreaty is clashing with more than two years of actions by the government, which discouraged alcohol sales at restaurants and bars and put up signs forbidding drinking in parks and in the streets. Uh, Quote, to some, any official encouragement to drink pandemic or not is a bad idea. Quote, none of the Japanese alcohol makers have signed on to the initiative, but bar owners praised it. In Ginza, one of Tokyo's popular nightlife districts, the pubs remain dimly lit and mostly quiet on Thursday night. I hope this helps Ginza come alive again, said Kenta Kobayashi, 34, a bartender who has seen a drastic drop in sales since the pandemic began. On average, people in Japan drink about 20 gallons of drank about 20 gallons of alcohol in 2020, down from 26 gallons in 1995, according to government data. The decline has hurt lucrative tax revenues. Levies on alcohol accounted for 1.7% of Japanese tax revenue, about $8 billion in in 2020, down from 3% in 2011 and 5% in 1980. In the United States, state and local governments collected $7.7 billion in alcohol taxes, or 0.2% of general revenue, in 2019, according to the Urban Institute. Under Japan tax... Uh, Under the Japan Tax Agency's contest, participants may propose new products and designs targeting young people, uh, even sales techniques involving artificial intelligence or the metaverse. As long as submissions are written in Japanese, they may come from anywhere. The winning entry will be commercialized. The contest organizers said that overindulgence was not the goal, adding that people should drink only the appropriate amount and take common sense measures against contracting the virus. We are in no way promoting excessive drinking among young people, said Ryu Tsukamoto, a a spokesman for the agency's alcohol tax division. But critics worried about unintended consequences. Hidetomi Tanaka, an economist, called the effort an irresponsible and unorthodox drinking campaign. 
About 1 million Japanese suffer from alcoholism, while about 9.8 million others are potentially addicted, according to research to, by the Japanese according to research by the Japanese Health Ministry. Worldwide, the pandemic has brought down alcohol consumption among younger adults. In South Korea, consumption of soju dropped by 14% from 2019 to 2020, and beer consumption by 23%, leading to the nation's lowest revenue in alcohol taxes in 10 years. In the United States, the prevalence of binge drinking among young adults surveyed dropped to 26% in 2020 after remaining at about 30% from 2015 to 2019, a study showed. Neither country's government has gone as far to promote drinking. In France, though, lawmakers once considered promoting wine consumption when wine exports and domestic sales fell off the table in 2004. Included in their recommendations was a program encouraging young people to educate their tastes. Uh, So that is the world story that I picked for this week. I thought it was an interesting kind of alternative, less doomsday kind of piece of news and I feel like they're hard harder and harder to come by so I wanted to to bring it up it's also a weird I think just a, a weird look at cultural differences and even you know even within a within one country right like the young people don't want to drink and the government is trying to encourage that and like what a bizarre like look at things and a difference in the United States and like a, what you know I guess like like it's it's all about money really at the end of the day and how that can kind of change value systems for a group of people or an individual um I thought it was it was an interesting and like such a different functioning system than what than what I've ever experienced in the U.S. It's funny that you think that it's not doomsday. I thought it was pretty doomsday. <laughs> that they're try- oh, you mean like, I guess in dystopian in the sense that the government's like drink more because we need more money. Yeah, no, I get that. But the fact that the young people like aren't drinking that much, like they've decided that alcohol isn't their thing, I think is, is not doomsday. You know, I feel like it would be worse if, if everyone was just binge drinking. I don't know. Yeah interesting Uh, I I was just I would say you know the fact that you know they're putting up some pretty I mean I think the U.S. is still number one as far as COVID is concerned or it's up there but you know they're describing this situation where it's like you're being told to be careful and avoid the virus but then Mm -hmm. you're being explicitly encouraged to go out and do something that just by default would increase your risk of contracting it Mm -hmm. because they want more money yeah. And it's it's kind of, um, I did hear about this. Um, I didn't look too much into it, but I think that's, there's also like a, a trend happening here in the States of people of a certain generation don't drink as much as mm-hmm. people who are say like 30 somethings or higher, like, it, mm-hmm. you know, drinking socially and like as a coming of age type thing was a bigger thing like in past generations mm-hmm. as opposed to now and i think that's been true even before the pandemic um yeah. happened but obviously with the pandemic it's i'm sure the business has taken a really big hit mhm you know it's interesting you said that i i actually haven't read much about you know drinking as a rite of passage um going down but i i God, what was the context? I remember reading about how, you know, you know, everyone always talks about like, oh, cell phones and the internet and how it's like, oh, it's bad for your brain, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually, there are some things where it's like, if you have a constant source of entertainment like that, like 
you sometimes do not do things that would otherwise have caused harm to others or would be like more dangerous or like, you know, other, other types of behaviors that in past generations were like just seeking some sort of stimulus. Like you have a constant source of stimulus. So it is interesting to kind of look at it from that perspective. And of course there's like pros and cons to all of that. Um, you know, as there always is in life, but it's a really interesting idea if that is the case, you know? Yeah. And like, I'm, you know, I'm someone who drinks, you know, I I drink, Mm -hmm. um, fairly regularly, but I do think it'll be interesting to see just years down the line, like how culture shifts around drinking. I mean, cause it's been around as something that human beings have done since like ancient times, mm-hmm. but also the beer and the wine that they were drinking, like in the middle ages, yeah. versus what you can get now is very different. Like it's not exactly the same. Yeah. And, you know, I think even if you look at something like how, you know, when you look back at old TV shows or like if you watch Mad Men or whatever, like how ubiquitous like smoking was and then it mm-hmm. became like, this is dangerous. We have to put this and that on the labels. You cannot smoke here. You cannot smoke there. And it mm-hmm. that has become normal for us that you can't just go, you can't smoke in a hospital. You can't. And, you know, alcohol, you know, I'm not a teetotaler, obviously, but it's not you know there are health that think like things that yeah. are detrimental to your health from drinking and uh, there's yeah. a lot of things that are not really publicized you know probably because it's a big industry that mm-hmm. makes a lot of money so there's a lot of pressure not to publicize or to be mm-hmm. super vocal about the ways alcohol can impact your health and I, I wonder if you know those things are going to you know is there going to be some kind of like ugly packaging that's required on beers in 15 20 30 years Mm -hmm. from now or something like it would be interesting to see but that was really interesting that is a really interesting um thing well when you brought up mad men i thought you were going to talk about how they're constantly drinking actually yeah (laughs) yeah and um you know and you know not to toot my grandpa's horn but he he like he told me recently he's never had a sip of beer in his life um, and he only ever like drank socially, like a couple of times with like my grandma and like coworkers, but it was always like, so just, you know, maybe you'll live to be 93 and playing tennis every day if you don't drink. <laughs> well, shout out to my cousin Hattie, who's in her nineties. And yep. according to my grandmother, she only drinks beer. <laughs> so see, I guess it depends on, person so, you to person. know, it depends yeah. on your, on the person, maybe your yeah. astrological sign. <laughs> Who can say? That's so true. But, um, but you're right though. Like alcohol, like you know, and I think one of the oldest people ever recorded or something, her secret was like a sip of whiskey every day. So I think, I think it it could be one of those things where it's like everything in moderation and maybe it depends on alcohol or I don't know what, but, um, but, but in, I think in moderate amounts, like I think in small amounts, maybe there's benefits, but even moderate to large amounts of alcohol, it's like a poison, right? Like when you're hungover, it's yeah. like, it's a, it's a toxic thing that's happening. And I am talking as someone who does, and I think I'm hungover right now. In fact, you know, like I, <laughs> I do enjoy drinking as well. And, and I think that, you know, it's, you were it's a bartender, a, no? I was a bartender and I loved it and missed it. That's right. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's, um, but it, like it is toxic. Like it's, it's one of those things where I think, but I mean, so much of so many things are toxic and, um, in this world. And I think, 
I think the best thing anyone can do is like, and is, I mean, this is the tough part of life is just like paying attention to your own body and your own needs and, and trying to make sure you're meeting those. Right. Um, but I think there's, there's so many things in this world that are barriers to people being able to like be in tune with their own, like, you know, as, including access to actual resources and things they need, you know, like actual, um, health and social supports and things like that. But, um, yeah, no, it's, um, oh, I forgot you said something else at the end of that. Well, like, oh yeah, well, everything, everybody drinking in Mad Men and how that's changed over time and how that culturally can shift over decades. It used, you know, people did used to just be drunk like all the time at work and it, and they make it look so casual in that show, but it's like, you know, yeah. I, they're, they're wasted. Like and they're, like, yeah, they're all day long drinking. Yeah. And like, I know, um, like a lot of the women who were involved in the temperance movement back mm-hmm. in the day, like a lot of, there was a lot of xenophobia, a lot of racism, mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, fucked up things in that movement. Mm-hmm. However, when you understand people were like, husbands and fathers were going to work leaving work and then getting like blind drunk coming home and terrorizing everyone like it was a real yep they had real legitimate concerns to be like we need to get rid of this shit yeah you know and like i think that even though it's not mad men like there it is interesting to think about just how much of our culture is around consuming and consuming alcohol like even Mm -hmm. like if you go to work parties it's normalized that there's drinking and like what if you don't drink for religious reasons Mm -hmm. for health reasons it's just not your thing that is like a way that you can be sort of excluded from a lot of things like you might not be at the party or be invited to the bar to make certain connections Mm -hmm. or whatever Um, with people yeah and it's interesting the the teetotaler thing that you brought up too where it's like that was a legitimate concern I know that I've had conversations with different people over the years and Americans and and non-American you know people from other cultures and um you know the whole the drinking age being 21 in the United States right and I know that everyone's like, oh, it's fucked up. Like you can, uh, you know, go to war and you can't legally drink. You can get married. You can't legally drink at your wedding. And and I agree that those things are like horrible ironies, but I've talked to like my dad and people that were, were around when the drinking age was like 18 and like, and like, there were like these horrible, horrible, like, you know, drunk act things that would happen. Like, like kids were dying. Right. Like, there, it yeah. wasn't yeah like there was there was horrible things happening because they couldn't put they couldn't control the drinking culture among young people yeah. um and you know and i and other cultures right like you know in europe or whatever and they're you know everyone's so casually drinking at like 16 with their families or whatever and it's just like i you know the more i like you know see and learn about the world like the more that just because something works in one culture doesn't mean it's going to work elsewhere right like it's that's great that that works in france and norway or whatever but like america is like it's like a hunt it's like a thousand different cultures all mashed up together and there's gonna be there's just shit that just isn't gonna work in the u.s just because it works elsewhere and um yeah no it's just it's really interesting to think about like um yeah like i mean you know i don't i'm not an expert but like and you know and and the drinking age being 21 also causes its own problems i know in college right um an 18 year you know the everyone's everyone's looking to party and looking to drink and if you're 18 you can't legally go to a bar 
And that may put young people and especially young women in dangerous situations where they're, you know, they're hanging out with older guys who can get them alcohol or like a frat house or something like that. So it definitely causes its own set of issues. Um, but alternatively maybe save lives over the last, you know, 40 years. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we are living through a, I, that shit, I can't even say once in a lifetime pandemic, we got three, four, five <laughs> on it feels like at the present. But like, you know, if you look at history, like, you know, pandemics do change things in society. I mean, like even with um, what happened with HIV and AIDS, there's things that you and I take for granted that are just normal, like a dentist wearing gloves on their hands when they're in your mouth. That wasn't the case before a certain year because there was this epidemic happening. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, I wonder how many things that like how many norms are going to shift because of COVID and people Mm -hmm. reevaluating how they spend their time, like whether or not this thing that you just took for granted that you just do every day after work, you're like, do I really want to do that? Do I need to do that? Is it good for me? Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe this, we'll see what happens with this Good luck with your contest in uh, in Japan, girl. But <laughs> I don't know. Like you can't be like drink up, but cover yeah. your mouth with a mask in the bar because there's this vibe. Like, yeah, you know, I think some things are just you know, the old world is behind us. Like we're in a state of flux right now, so mm. it seems like a fool's errand to be like we're gonna go back to normal because it's you know, we've been changed, whether we want to admit to it or not, the changes are happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Is it time for some good news, Jasmine? Uh, allegedly, yes. <laughs> so this is something I got from the website you often mention. It's called the from the Good News Network. And it is about a rabies vaccine. So the title is Cheap single-dose rabies vaccine passes phase one trials, could save thousands of lives, and it's by Andy Corbley. Uh, Researchers from the University of Oxford have today reported, and today being um, August the 18th, so this is from a few days ago, have today reported new findings from a phase one clinical trial studying the immune response and safety of their newly developed single-shot rabies vaccine, and the results look great. 12 volunteers were recruited into the study in total, with three receiving a low dose, three receiving a medium dose, and six receiving a high dose of CHADOX2RABG, and strong immune responses against rabies were seen in all but the, lo- but the low-dose trio. Additionally, the researchers assessed longer-term immune responses. Six of the seven middle and high-dose recipients who returned for an additional follow-up one year after vaccination maintained neutralizing antibody levels above the protective threshold set internationally by the World Health Organization for rabies vaccines, demonstrating that the immune response from the vaccine persists over time. All existing rabies vaccines are either two or three dose procedures, and despite these having been available for years, there are still around 60,000 deaths worldwide from rabies every year. Often patients in developing countries can afford only one, as each shot is expensive to manufacture. 
unlike the COVID vaccines, which weren't vaccines in the traditional sense and were more like targeted therapies only designed to identify the virus's spike protein. I'm butchering the name of this thing because this is all periodic table stuff that I don't remember, so forgive me for just saying the letters. C-H-A-D-O-X-2-R-A-B-G creates dead viruses that code for a rabies glycoprotein that allows the body's immune system to recognize the whole virus and thusly destroy it. We're absolutely delighted with these early results. The vaccine has performed even better than we had expected, reported Chief Investigator on the, tri- on the trial, Sandy Douglas. The problems with existing rabies vaccines are that they are expensive and require multiple doses. We're very hopeful that expanded trials in countries affected by rabies will prove that this new vaccine could enable routine, affordable, single-dose vaccination against this devastating disease for people living in such areas. The results were published in Lancet Microbe. A phase two trial is going on with 200 participants in Tanzania with results expected later this year. That's amazing. So um, diseases are my house of horrors, as we've talked about. And rabies is one of my like biggest like boogeymen because every time it's like one of those things I've just here, like, I, I, there's this NPR story about, like, if you're ever in a room and you wake up and there's a bat in the room, like, you should get, you should automatically just get a rabies vaccine because um, you don't know, you might not know if you've been bit in your sleep. It's like a whole horror thing. So I just have this whole thing about, like, bats where I'm just like, oh, um, I would give me that shot. I want that. They're cute and they're good for the environment, but I'm so afraid of rabies. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, rabies it's over with like yeah. that's a- it's a bad one I actually did talk to a friend recently who said they actually have had um I mean rabies cases worldwide you know like as you just said are a threat um in in certain countries where there there are rare infections at any point and like in the U.S. apparently there have been like actual recently like some successes with like like helping people recover which is like, but like, it's so the infections, I don't know. So there may be the cool stuff on that front as well. Um, unconfirmed. So it's just my friend who does have some medical training, but, um, but I give me that rabies shot. I would love to have that vaccine. <laughs> That's great news. You know, those, um, those anti-vax billboards or posters where they have like a doll baby with all of the syringes sticking out oh, of it and God. that's supposed to scare you yeah like, right like, give me that shot <laughs> i want the vaccine <laughs> i would rather that than all the stuff that it's vaccinating me against oh, like are yeah. you serious you oh, don't yeah. even remember you were a baby yeah no like oh yeah give me that shot um yeah i've also i've also learned a lot about polio vaccination <laughs> the last few weeks yeah i'm sure it's many people have that- this made me think of that because I, I do hope that it bears out that this cheaper single mm-hmm. dose one is as good or better than the more expensive one. Because I yeah. think with the polio situation, what you see is like a lot of the it's cheaper, it's easier to do the oral one, but it mm-hmm. doesn't offer the same. Um, no. kind of, like, it has its own issues yeah. that can arise from that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think it is when it doesn't have those issues that come up, it actually is super effective, but like, like it's like one in, there's a chance that 
yeah, it's a lot. It's a whole thing. There's a chance that it could actually make you sick, um, which is obviously yeah. the downside. Yeah, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. So. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, let's focus on uh, hopefully the yeah. second phase of the trials will go well as and, you know, Hell yeah. rabies will be a distant memory. Oh, give me that vaccine. Cool. All right. Cool. Do you want to take us out, Jasmine? Sure, I can do that. So um, you've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, please continue to listen for more listener-supported community radio. Um, and we're going to play you out with one final track. Miss Kane by Swindle. And happy birthday again to Emily's grandfather. Yeah. I hope you're playing tennis. Well, not, maybe not in this heat. Yeah, he's with family, though, which is the best. Sydney. Oh, all right. Have a good week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.